The following lecture was delivered at the 17th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yitzchak Shochet presents his lecture, Life Lessons from the Royal Family. Has anyone ever met the royal family? Or has anyone actually ever been to Buckingham Palace? Just yell out so I can at least hear that. Oh, I see some hands. There you go. Very good. So I guess a number of you will have also been to London. Um, Well, as you know, in the last couple of years, we've had some real royal family shenanigans. Thankfully, we sent Harry your way, and he's more your problem now. In fact, anyone who's ever been to Buckingham Palace, or even if not, you'll know that there's something called the changing of the guards that takes place pretty much every day and is quite a royal spectacle. I can tell you that when Harry comes to town with Meghan, it's more a changing of the locks, but that's another matter. I I personally never actually met the Queen, but I did have opportunity to meet the current King previously when he was known as Prince Charles, and I had occasion to meet... William, who will ultimately become king, together with his wife, Kate, etc. And more on that in due course. I can tell you that, in actual fact, someone just asked me before, is Charles well disposed towards the Jewish community? And we'll come back to that. But he had a unique relationship with the previous chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, a really extraordinary relationship. When Chief Rabbi Sachs, who was, of course, very close with Chabad, sadly passed. It was during COVID, so the actual Levaya was particularly small. But at the Shloshim, after the 30 days, there was opportunity to host this worldwide tribute on Zoom, on video, and in which Charles himself, then still Prince Charles, spoke. And he spoke for about 20 minutes very emotionally and very beautifully about his special relationship with Jonathan Sachs and how Sachs had made such a transformation in his life. In fact, just one quick anecdote. Uh, There was a point in time some while ago when Prince Harry, um, before he got married, was a bit of a wild child, and he dressed up in a Nazi uniform when he was partying with a bunch of friends in Las Vegas. And obviously it created quite a tumult and quite a furor. And when he returned, what happened was that Prince Charles, or King Charles, called up Chief Rabbi Sachs and said, would you mind to have some words with my son? Needless to say, you know, you're going to be speaking to the Queen's grandson. How, what, when? And he insisted, and he says, please, spare no blows. Just, just lay it on the line and tell it to him like it is. Don't worry about him feeling bad. I'm sending him to you to talk to him about how everything he did in that moment was wrong. And that was the, the very nature of their actual relationship. Particularly in the last six months, I had the opportunity to meet with Richard Griffin, who was Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth's protection officer. And I also had William French, who was the Queen's personal butler that came to my shoal and spoke and had a fascinating conversation with him. Um, and as much as there is a principle of Mikol Malamdai Hiskalti, we can glean wisdom from everyone, I think much of what they had to share can convey some very important life lessons for us all. After all, we are referred to as Mamlechas Kohanim, a regal nation, so why not take lessons from 
a royal and determine how we can apply it into our own regal selves. Richard Griffin told me this story personally, and it, it's out there, and it was shared in different ways by different people. He recalled in particular detail how the queen would take regular summer holidays at her Balmoral Castle, situated in Scotland. It was a summer stay for the royals since actually the mid-1800s. Why they chose a holiday in Scotland, I don't know. Maybe it's because of the whiskey. I mean, this particular castle is in a place called Aberdeenshire, which uh, has no less than eight whiskey distilleries, tiny a place that it might be. Most of them quite unique. And I guess maybe, I don't know, when dealing with a family like hers, it's a great place to release some of that tension. One of the things that Queen Elizabeth liked to do was take strolls. The greenery there, as he told me, was, is absolutely magnificent. It's lush green mountains which tower majestically and their emerald slopes cascading into valleys down below. Every peak is... Is, is laden and adorned with a tapestry of vibrant flowers, creating a captivating spectacle of natural beauty. And there are misty clouds that are hovering at the peaks, and it's absolutely a magnificent sight to behold. Ordinarily, when you go walking in that sort of area, it's literally you alone with the world. You know, Lahavdil had said about the great Balshemtov that he used to like to be alone often with nature. It provided him an opportunity to marvel at the wonders of creation and thereby feel a deep sense of awe for God, the creator. And the same is said of other great mystics. So it so happened that Her Majesty, who liked to regularly walk in these areas, was once walking together with Richard Griffin, their protection officer, and they encountered two American hikers. Leave it to you Yanks to crash a party, right? And being true Americans, they had not recognized the queen. Then again, why should they? We had her face all over our pound coins. We have her on other notes, etc. Why, why should the Americans necessarily recognize her? Even more typical of Americans is that one of them starts chatting with the queen, telling her where he's from, telling her what brings him to Scotland for this walking holiday. And then he turns to her and he says, and where do you live? <laughs> and she replies, well... I live in London, but I have a holiday home here just over the other side of the hills. And he said, well, how long have you been coming up here? And she says, I've been coming up here since I was a little girl, over 80 years. And without missing a beat, the American says, well, if you've been coming here that long, you must have surely bumped into the queen. And as quick as a flash, the queen responds, and she was very witty. She says, well, I haven't, but... And then pointing to her protection officer, Richard, she says... He meets her regularly. And so the American turns to Richard and asks, what's she like? <laughs> and knowing the good nature of the queen and his special, as he told me, he said, I had a really close relationship with her. I can tell her anything. So he replies, well, she can be quite cantankerous at times, but she's got a lovely sense of humor. The next thing that happens is that the guy puts his hand around Richard Griffin, the protection officer, hands his camera to the queen and asks, can you please take a picture of us? Which he, which she dutifully did. And then he did the reverse. He swapped places with the bodyguard and asked the, took a picture. He asked the bodyguard, here, take the camera and take a picture of me with the queen without ever realizing who it was, without her or anybody else letting on. They said their goodbyes. 
Whereupon, Her Majesty the Queen turned to Richard and said, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows those photographs to his friends in America. Now, just this story alone I want to focus on for a couple of minutes. Because on so many levels, that story reflects, reflects the reality of our own lives. We journey through life with its highs and with its lows. And all too often, we are oblivious as to the very presence of the king of kings in our midst. You know, King Solomon says very profoundly in Song of Songs that, Behold, he is standing, that is God, watching us, looking through the windows, peering through the lattices. Why this distinction? Well, sometimes God is looking through the windows, where if we want to, we can see him just as he sees us. Other times, arguably many times, he's peering through the lattices, where he still continues to see and watch over us, even as we don't necessarily readily see him. In the high moments of life, we might sometimes lose sight of the blatant divine blessings in our lives. We might delude ourselves into thinking that it is, in the words of the verse, my strength and my ability that has enabled me all of this wealth. We mistakenly assume ourselves the guardians or the protection officers of this world, if you will, and as being of greater significance, ignoring the reality of the king in whose very presence we are standing. In fact, the very gifts and the very blessings in our lives is God looking through the window. And if only we open our eyes, we recognize this and we see him just as he sees us. And we would learn to deal with those blessings accordingly. You know, the ancient rabbis state categorically, with Rosh Hashanah now coming up, that God determines already at the outset of every single year, during the very days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, how much we're going to make, how much we're going to earn through the course of the year. We certainly have to make ourselves a conduit through which to receive the blessings. We obviously don't just sit there, twiddle our fingers, and just assume that it's all going to come to us. But even in so doing, in the words of Proverbs, it is the blessing of God that engenders wealth. And therefore, we should never become indulgent to the point where material pursuit overtakes broader spiritual perspective. But alas, you know, today's generation, they don't cry over spilled milk anymore. They cry over spilled champagne. They don't complain about the lack of necessities, but the abundance of benefits. We moan over the frills, not the basics. And indeed, the greatest irony of today's generation is that the source of their problem is very often the blessings themselves. That's in the high moments. And then, of course, in the low moments of life, then too, we are inclined to assume that the king has abandoned us, leaving us to fend for ourselves. Sometimes we feel trapped in life. Sometimes we feel shackled to our destiny. Again, oblivious to the fact that even as we might sometimes feel emotionally that we've hit rock bottom, it's never, ever really rock bottom. We're really just falling through a trap door into a new place, the inner realm of our soul where we can begin to explore our connection to life and to God in a whole new way. Again, we can't perceive God necessarily always in these moments, and maybe we submit despairingly without seeing a way out. There's that well-known anecdote that they often tell about a man at the end of his life 
who was shown an image of his life and all the journeys he traveled. And regularly throughout, he sees two sets of footprints, which he identifies as being his footprints and that of God's footprints. And then when he looks a little closer, he realizes and determines that at certain intervals of his life, there's only one set of footprints. And when he observes closer still, he realizes that that actually was in the darkest moments of his life. And he turns to God and he says, I don't understand. Why is it that in my darkest moments, you abandoned me? And God said, you don't understand. In those darkest moments, I carried you. I would add to that. Imagine how despondent you might feel if one day you look back on the roads traveled and you see how next to your footprints in the sand of your life's journey, there is the indentation from the ball you've been chained to every step of the way. If you've got to become imprisoned into your own predicaments and just accept them as your given reality, you'll never be able to breathe the fresh air of brighter prospects. So like that American who was oblivious to the fact that he was standing in the presence of the queen when having that whole conversation with the protection officer, we have to recognize that God is there. He never overimposes upon his creation. And that in those moments of whatever particular challenge, he's still peering through the lattices. Because the bottom line is, if God got you to it, God will get you through it. So a worthwhile exercise is to sometimes pause, look inward, to use again the words of the queen, become a fly on the wall of your own life, where through proper introspection, you could become more aware of whether you've been paying too much attention to the lesser significant aspects of your lives, the trivial and the transient, rather than appreciating that you've been in the presence of royalty and majesty all along. But then there's one other point to consider in this regard, and something very profound about that wonderful anecdote of Her Majesty. It captures the the true nature of who the queen was. The queen was not somebody who stood on ceremony. She was not somebody, she was actually a very tiny figure, but not somebody who ignored others, didn't have what they like to call that Napoleon complex, not somebody, as I say, who stood on ceremony, who always held herself grand. Sure, she represented everything regal and splendor and glory, but it is precisely the personification of humility that really made her stand out. Being the queen was certainly the most arduous vocation on earth. Royalty demands bearing a standard that is greater than the individual, personifying an ideal that is bequeathed not for you to do as you like, but essentially to protect the progeny. Not to live for the moment, but to make the moment live, suspended in a chain of succession of noble forebears and towards the promise of the future. And you know, the Talmud tells us that there where you find the greatness of God, you will also find his humility. It's in fact derived from the Haftarah that we always read on Yom Kippur. And the commentaries explain, regardless of how infinitely exalted God is, He remains eminently connected to even anyone of lowly spirit. It doesn't matter how adrift we have become. It doesn't matter to the depths of the quagmire into which we have sunk. The Torah itself attests to the fact that God is He dwells with us even when we might find ourselves in utter states of impurity. That is to say, even if we become 
for lack of a better word, contaminated by the allures of a material world, don't despair. God is still with you every single step of the way, always waiting for us to wake up and have our reality check. As we sing in one of everybody's favorite high holiday songs, V'chol Maminim, Hatov v'hametiv l'ra'em v'latovim, he shows compassion to those who are good and to those who might appear to be anything but good. And you know, when we recite the halal service on special occasions, we read paragraphs taken from the Psalms, one of which actually declares he raises the poor from the dust and lifts up the needy from the refuse heap. Sometimes, for whatever the reason, we become poor, that is to say, spiritually poor, impoverished even. But God doesn't stand on ceremony. God doesn't condemn us to some irremediable abyss. Habal Tahir Misanosa, the sages always tell us, one who comes to purify themselves, God will be there to carry you. You make one gesture in the right direction. Undertake one new commitment. Take your baby step, and God will take you the rest of the distance. You know, the, just to sidetrack for a second, it's worthwhile noting this. It's a certain, a very important lesson I learned from my father, Olava Shalom. The Baal Shem Tov and all other teachers of Hasidism tell us, you know what the tactic of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination is? The evil inclination is never going to come along and actually tell you to do a sin, commit a sin, or to tell you don't do a certain mitzvah. He knows which Jew with a burning neshama is ever really going to listen to that. What does the Yetzirah come and tell you? The exact opposite. He's going to tell you that you're a nobody. He's going to tell you that you're worthless. He's going to tell you, who are you to open up a sitter after you've done X, Y, and Z? You're on the refuse heap of life. How dare you put on tefillin this one time? Why on earth are you bothering to light Shabbat candles after you've done you know what? You're spiritually impoverished. You haven't been to shul all year. How do you have the chutzpah to suddenly show your face on Yom Kippur? You're worthless. Your mitzvahs are worthless. Everything you do is meaningless. And that ultimately engenders spiritually low self-esteem. That idea that I'm not really worth it, that what I do doesn't really matter, what can I really achieve? So we gradually just give up on more and more things. And eventually, we give up on ourselves, on our spiritual selves altogether. But let's just pause and consider the absurdity of the argument. Let's assume someone, God forbid, has a heart condition, and one of his lungs has conked out. His stomach is weak, his liver he's lost from all the alcohol he's drunk, and one of his kidneys isn't functioning. But he can still do certain things. He's three quarters gone, his vital organs are struggling, but he loves skiing, so he decides he's going to go skiing. And when he goes out skiing, guess what? He falls and he breaks a leg. Now what's he thinking to himself? Should I even go to the doctor and get a splint to fix my leg? Why should I? What's the point? If I go to the doctor, I have to pay the splint, the therapy. It's all going to cost money. I'm already three quarters gone. What's the point? I'll leave the leg alone. That's, that's one way to go about it. <laughs> but how's that going to leave a person feeling? Even greater despair than before. No one would do that in their right mind. An alternative is, yeah, you know what? You might be three quarters gone, but a quarter you still have. 
So try to keep that quarter as strong and as powerful as possible. By all means, fix the leg. It doesn't matter what you have me doing it. It doesn't matter what doesn't work. What does matter is what you can fix and take the moment and fix. Your three quarters gone spiritually, but you have this one minute of putting on tefillin. You have this half mitzvah of lighting Shabbos candles. You have this half a second of doing whichever mitzvah. You're putting the splint on the leg. The Yetzirah comes along and says, give up. You're nobody. You're worthless. It's all a waste of time. If you believe him, if you buy into what he has to say, then it's a downhill slope in the backwaters of Scotland. But the hard fact is we were created in the image of God. As individuals, we bear his royal insignia. And collectively, when we were born into nationhood at Sinai, we were proclaimed, as we said, a regal nation. We all became kings and queens, as it were, tasked with the responsibility of being trailblazers to society. So yes, where you find God's greatness you will also find his humility. He's there waiting for you, extending a hand to pull you out of your rut. There's a story that actually takes place with an earlier monarch. Actually, it was the queen's father several decades before. Him I obviously never met. Beryl Gartner shared this most remarkable story on BBC Radio. He was 12 before World War II. He was one of the children who had left Germany through the kinder transport. He arrived in England. He was taken to an orphanage. He spent most of his days in that orphanage crying bitterly and asking his caregivers, when will I be able to see my mother and father again? And as hard as they tried to make him happy, it was inconsolable. And one day, Beryl's caregivers found out that King George VI, that's the Queen's father, would be passing through their village, as he frequently did during those early years of his reign. And when they told Beryl that he would be seeing the king pass by that day to lighten him up, it was the first time in a very long time that he suddenly really wasn't crying. He had a plan. Because he and the other Jewish children were going to be taken to this town square to stand behind a barricade and wave, as the English love to do whenever the king or queen passes. And as the royal carriage came closer, Beryl jumped the barricade, and he literally ran with all of his might towards the king's carriage. And obviously, as soon as the royal guards there and then saw him, they grabbed him and they carried him back to the barricade. But there was a commotion for a few moments. So the king asked his guards, what's going on? And they repeated, and they said, there's this boy who literally jumped the barricades. He was charging towards your carriage. So we kind of wrestled him down and brought him back. So the king said, well, what did he want? And I said, don't know. I mean, so he said, can you, can you summon him forth? Tell him to come close. So the guards go back to the barricade, and they ask Beryl to come back towards the carriage. The king looks to Beryl and says, why did you run towards my carriage? Is there something specific that you wanted to do, that you want to tell me? And Beryl broke down crying. And he proceeded to tell King George VI how badly he was missing his parents who were still stuck back in Germany. And then he wipes the tears and he said, please, please, help to be able to bring my parents here. And King George said, young boy, we are at war with Germany. It would be impossible for me to do that. 
And Beryl looked and said, but you're the king of England. You can do anything. Please bring my parents to me. And the king looked at the boy with compassion and said, please don't cry. I, I promise I will do what I can to try and make it happen. Beryl actually gave the king's secretary sitting with him his parents' names, thanked him, and walked away, obviously not quite sure what to expect. One month later, there was a knock at the door of the orphanage. Beryl's parents had arrived. Somehow, they were brought out of Germany and were reunited with their son. It's the same point. God is always there, waiting for us to jump over the barricades. Sometimes you have to summon what we like to call Jewish chutzpah, charge forth, cry out, Rebbeinu Shalayla, master of the universe, you are the king. You can do anything. And indeed, ask him for anything. Or as my father always used to say, don't hesitate to ask God for anything you need or want. There's no shortage in his treasuries, in his storage houses up above. We just need to recognize and acknowledge his very presence in our midst. And then take advantage to experience God's closeness. Clarify the goals that you deeply yearn to accomplish and beseech from God to invest in you. Now, of course, the Queen passed earlier this year. And that in itself prompted all kinds of incredible sadness. Literally, even I, so I'm Canadian, yes, part of the Commonwealth, and I've been living in the UK now for 32 years, but the Queen is essentially, regardless of who you are and where you are, unless you're a diehard anti-royalist, just part of your ongoing feature. It's like every day, something in some form of media, etc. So once she dies, everybody actually felt impacted by it. Even I felt somewhat emotional by, by her loss. And now we have a king. And of course, the coronation was a big event. Frankly, most will only ever really live through one in a lifetime, if that. The Mishnah, in Ethics of the Fathers, makes it abundantly clear that you're supposed to pray for the well-being of the monarchy, which is the very basis for a special prayer that we recite pretty much every synagogue in the UK every single week in Shul on Shabbos before the Torah goes back into the ark. When the Jews were exiled to Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah relayed a message, seek the peace of the city to which I have exiled you and pray to God for its sake. Same principle. Quite surprisingly, the queen was completely unaware of the fact that this prayer was being recited and it had been recited for probably over a century. And when only about, I think, 20-something years ago, if that, she was at a special ceremony in a particular synagogue, and she looked up on the wall because apart from the prayer as it is, and it gets modified all the time, to in, in the actual sitter, it's actually often on plaques on the wall as well. And she stood there, and she was staring at it. She had never actually known that there is this prayer, or at least the text of the prayer, and she was deeply moved by the wording of it, very much so. When we're living in a democracy and benefiting from freedom of religious expression, we have to be grateful, and we have an absolute responsibility to express that gratitude. So here are some of the things. William French, that was the name of her butler. He actually was previously working on a yacht that the family used to take, and he shared some 
fascinating anecdotes about much of that, not least the fact that three of her kids used that yacht, the Queen, I guess a yacht, I mean, it's, uh, it's much more than a yacht, the QE2. It's this massive thing. And she uh, would make available to those kids the so-called honeymoon suite. Those three kids all subsequently got divorced, so she stopped making it available to the rest of her kids. So he said. And he actually shared with me, again, personal stories and stuff that you can actually take lessons from and apply into her own daily living. But actually, just before getting into that, it's quite amazing some of the things. Like, for example, he said the queen was actually very superstitious. She always had to have an even number of people at her table, at her dinner table. If it was an odd number, someone from her staff would have to sit in in order to round it off. Amazingly, she had a secret button under the table. If she was sat next to someone with whom things weren't going quite to her liking and she wasn't enjoying, she'd push that button and butlers were in the kitchen and they would get the signal to know to move things along very, very quickly. Huh? Imagine we could all use that sometimes, right? Um, except you can't use it on Shabbos, but still. Her nickname, anyone know what her nickname was? The queen had a nickname. It was Cabbage. Don't ask me why, but the only one who ever called her that was Prince Philip. And she liked her bath, which she took every single morning at exactly 7 a.m. And the bath had to be exactly 21 degrees or 69.8 degrees Fahrenheit. The water would be checked three times before she would go into it. Now, I don't know if that gives new definition to OCD or what, but that's how particular the queen was and how particular they were to make sure that her creature comforts were to her exact standard. How you would know whether the bath is 69.8 or already hit 70, I don't know, but hey. But here are some further important lessons from things that he actually shared. Have a sense of duty beyond yourself. The monarchy had have sprawling palaces all over the country, but they all consciously know, certainly those higher up, that they are living for something larger than themselves. No one knows exactly what really goes on in the private world of the Windsors, as they are. But we can be sure it's not always a walk in Hyde Park. But a simple observation of the royal lifestyle over the years gives clearly the impression that they do place high value, very high value, on duty. Duty, that's a word that's lost on our modern-day culture. Think about it. Duty means a, a moral obligation, a responsibility, or an action that you are required to perform. Can you think of a culture that values duty less than our world today? Nothing in the contemporary secular conversation calls on us to assume any sense of duty. We're taught to be nice. We're taught to be cordial. We're taught to be tolerant and respectful, to give a few dollars to a homeless man in the street, to be sensitive to other people's feelings. But to assume any sense of duty that challenges our pleasures, that forces us out of our comfort zones, that requires profound and unwavering commitment, having a sense of duty is actually often seen as the arch enemy of the virtues that have become emblematic in our times. Self-expression, self-assertion, 
emotional independence. We live in a world that's blighted with individualism. Everyone in pursuit of their own agenda. You want to drive a faster car, you want to climb a higher mountain. Today, everything has to be newer, flasher, wilder, more amazing, more expensive, more groundbreaking, bigger, cruder, louder. We live in a world that pushes the boundaries, that needs new degrees of sensationalism just to keep people remotely interested. In what Time magazine once described as the me, me, me generation, the end result is that today you have all kinds of rage and road rage and plane rage and youth rage and age rage, new names or extreme new syndromes that encapsulate the corrosive impatience and instant anger, which is just another feature of our want it now, want it faster, want it better for me world. But when you don't have a broader sense of duty towards something greater than yourself, how do you learn? who you really are? How do you acquire the depth, dignity, and maturity that are the underpinnings of the human experience? God built the world on the foundation of love and kindness, and God gave us the responsibility of continuing to perpetuate that kindness. We need to revisit that sense of duty as citizens and as Jews. Then there's a second one. I'm not going to have time to go through these, but I mentioned this before, brush aside vanity. You know, one thing that is unique about the royal family, again, those higher up, certainly, the modesty. First of all, even the modesty in dress. Think about the royals. You'll only ever see them dressed modestly. And by extension, also, the modesty in behavior, the lack of vanity. The royal family, he said to me, practice what behavioral psychologists call self-distancing. They're able, with a lack of vanity, to literally comb through an onslaught of personal stories in the tabloids every single day and still remain detached and frequently amused spectators. They don't allow for things to trigger them and get to their egos and get them upset. Think back to any argument you might have had this past year with your spouse, with your children, with your friends, with a work colleague. You have an opinion, you want to express that opinion. That's fair enough. So how did you get from expressing that opinion to not speaking to each other for the next three days? Because rather than sometimes stepping back, looking to make amends, apologizing, saying sorry, you become so entrenched in your position that when someone offers you an opposing point of view, your ego rages, you become triggered, and everything goes downhill from there. Brush aside vanity. What is it they tell about that famous rock star who purchased expensive material? and brought it to a top tailor at Savile Row in London. The tailor measured the man, measured the material, and said, not enough for a suit. Then he went to another tailor in the Champs-Élysées in Paris, measured the man, measured the material, not enough for a suit. Then he went to the backwaters of Jerusalem for a concert, and he brought it to a tailor, and the tailor said, okay, I can make you a suit with enough material to make a spare pair of trousers. He says, whoa, I don't get it. I went to London, I went to Paris, they tell me that they don't have enough for a suit. You can make for a suit and a spare pair of trousers. And he says, yeah, you know, here in Israel, you're not such a big man. <laughs> in admonishing the people at the end of his life, Moshe declares, I am the one who stands between you and God in order to communicate his word. Or to put it differently, it's the I that gets in the way between ourselves and God. We have to learn to brush aside the vanity, be a little bit more modest, make space for another person. Very quickly, number three, keep calm and carry on. Notwithstanding whatever the challenge is, and there are plenty, the royal family always stay focused. They always carry on. 
Let's face it, we are bombarded with negativity all of the time, not just in society, but very much in our own home environments and workplaces. And the clamor of pessimism is echoing all around us. And it's enough to upend our calmness and ability to carry on. Some people thrive on gloom. It feeds on itself. I see it all the time. People get locked into habitual doom and gloom thoughts and the emotions that they produce, fear, sadness, anger, and it becomes their comfort zone. It may not be very pleasant, but it's familiar and therefore comfortable. Like the Jewish boy calls up his mother, Mom, how are you? Not too good. I'd be very weak. Mama, why are you so weak? Because I haven't eaten in 38 days. Mama, that's terrible. Why haven't you eaten in 38 days? Because I didn't want my mouth to be full in case you should call. (laughs) Jewish guilt. There's a concept in psychology called purposeful repressor which is where someone consciously learns to dial down the negative mind chatter. Could you imagine if the royal family would genuinely pay attention to all of the stuff that's put out there regularly and all of the negativity and how much that would actually drag them down? We have to learn to repress the negative. Few things in life are more powerful than a positive perspective because it affects everything you do. And number four, silence is golden. There's a brilliant royal mantra. And they've always said this, and everybody knows it. And they live by this. Never complain, never explain. It's true that the royal family has been criticized for often keeping a stiff upper lip. But you will never hear, whenever there's whatever rumor, gossip, and everything else besides out there, you don't hear comment typically from the palace. And it's true that that stiff upper lip can sometimes appear to be emotionally cold. But in our culture of nonstop social media, talk radio, and news commentaries, silence can be golden. Never has the world been more susceptible to negative speech than our social network environment, the harm and the damage that is engendered today through social media. Because whatever you have to say about somebody else reverberates and reaches a far wider audience. And is this effectively enshrined for all of eternity? And I mention this only because in as much as we have to be careful with what comes out of our mouths, enabling and facilitating because of how far our words can actually go, we also have to make a clear point of maintaining greater awareness and greater sensitivity. Did you know that the average woman is apparently uses about 17,000 words a day. The average man only has about 8,000 words to use every single day, which, ladies, means that when you come home at the end of a day and you're talking to your husband and he doesn't respond, it doesn't mean he's not interested. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It simply means that he's run out of words. Wait till the next morning when he has a new supply and try again. And by the way, silence is not necessarily the absence of speech. Sometimes silence says more than words can ever hope to articulate. And finally, last one, keep the faith. Keeping the faith. The queen attended prayer services every single Sunday. She went to her church more often than most Jews go to shul. It is said she prayed every single night before she went to bed. King Charles now declared himself a defender of the faiths and, as you may well know, rearranged his inaugural interfaith meeting back in April as soon as he was appointed, sending the chief rabbi home in time for Shabbos. He even organized the coronation to accommodate Shabbos in appreciation and respect of the Jewish faith. And as I mentioned earlier, had a close, deep relationship with previous chief rabbi Jonathan Sachs, 
who moved him, as he said, morally and spiritually. As I mentioned in previous lectures, especially about anti-Semitism, the world respects Jews who respect themselves. We have to be defenders of our own faith rather than sometimes shirk in the shadows. We have to hold our heads high in appreciation of who we are and what we represent rather than resort to what the author Israel Zangwill once described as the ghetto stoop. And that's a key point to remember. What is it, that, that, that schlamuzzle who could never earn a living and he always stayed at home, and his, every day his mother, his, his in-laws felt never so bad, they kept bringing food and putting it on the doorstep, and every day he'd open up the window and says, ah, Baruch Hashem, thank God, God provides. And that's the way it went on every single day and every single week and every single month, and finally the mother-in-law got so fed up that one day she puts the food on the doorstep, he opens the window, oh, Baruch Hashem, thank God, God provides. She gets so fed up. She goes running up to him. She's waving the bill in his face. She says, God provides. It's me who's paying these bills every single day, every single week. And without missing a beat, he looks to the heavens and he goes, Baruch Hashem, God is so great. Not only does he provide, but he gets the devil to pay for it. If you believe, when you believe, God will deliver one way or another. It simply becomes a question of whether you choose to attribute that to coincidence or you recognize always the divine hand in all of it. From a faith perspective, a coincidence is really a miracle in which God chooses to remain anonymous. And remember, faith is not something external. If the king, the queen, can be so committed to their faith, then how much can we learn from that as well? It's not something outside yourself, something you reach for from your medicine cabinet when you are in need. It's something deeply engraved in the human heart and soul. Indeed, if they who sit on thrones can recognize that there is a higher throne upon which to lay their worries or draw their strength, then we too can learn to believe more, pray more, do more, be more. And a very quick final thought, if ever you are perplexed about the state of affairs within your own family, just go and visit the royal family. You'll likely walk away saying, hey, you know, we're not really doing too badly after all. So as we say in England, long live the king and long live those life lessons in all of us. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings.